Ladies and gentlemen, fellow Americans, American patriots, I'm sure I do not come before you tonight as a complete stranger. You all have heard of me through the Jewish-controlled press as a creature with horns, a cloven hoof, and a long tail. We, with American ideals, demand that our government shall be returned to the American people who founded it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Axis History Podcast. I am your host, Nick Barksdale, and today we are joined once again by a very special guest. And this time, I'm happy to bring you Professor Bradley Hart. Dr. Hart, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, thank you for having me and very much looking forward to it. Today, we are going to discuss a very interesting topic and one that I feel like many Americans aren't personally familiar with. And I must say, I myself was in the dark on this subject for quite some time, and I'm really happy to do this episode and really clear up quite a bit while also exposing certain portions of America's history that we may not necessarily want to talk about. And that is Hitler's American Friends, the Third Reich supporters in the United States. When it comes to this book, what led you to write about Hitler's American Friends? Well, one thing that I always like to mention on interviews is that I started writing this book back in 2014, following my previous works on Nazis, Nazi sympathizers in, in the UK during this same period. And I kind of came across this story accidentally. I was working in the archives at the Hoover Institution in Stanford, at Stanford University, came across this incredible collection of uh, actually diary entries from a man named John Metcalf, who features really heavily in the book, who actually infiltrated one of the groups that we're going to talk about today. So I came to this story really by accident, but I realized as I was digging through these sources that this was a story that not only did most Americans not know about, I, I certainly didn't know about it. And as someone who's taught history in, the, in a college classroom, I've never seen this in the textbooks before. But I also realized that this was a story that needed to be told. This was a story that had, not, you know, at that point, hopefully not contemporary resonance for people, not nearly in the way that we would see it today, but certainly a story that I thought had importance for American sort of civic awareness. And so I came to this story really by accident, but when I started digging into it, I realized there was just just so much more there that needed to be exposed. As you point out in your book, we look at Pearl Harbor as a tragedy that brought the USA together. But there's an uncomfortable truth behind that, and that was the fact that America up to that point was deeply divided. Would you expand on this and explain what was this division? Well, this is something that we often forget about the 1930s and 1940s, partially because I think we as human beings have a tendency to mythologize our own past. And by that, I mean, we don't make up stories about it outright. We try to remember the past to some extent as it actually happened. But every human being in every society has a tendency to view itself and themselves as the heroes of their own story. So if you want an example of this mythologizing, look at Tom Brokaw's famous description of the generation of World War II as the greatest generation. This is really a mythology, right? Certainly, this is not to say that those individuals didn't do incredibly heroic things. They did indeed save the world from from fascism. But that sort of overshadows the true political dynamics of the time. 
America was very deeply divided in the 1930s. Franklin Roosevelt had implemented the New Deal, which was highly controversial. We almost forget this today. There was even talk in 1937 and 38 when Roosevelt had attempted to expand the Supreme Court with his own nominees that he should be impeached prior to the 1940 election. This is, this is all history, I should say, that we, we have forgotten today because we tend to see Roosevelt as this outsized, almost unassailable leader, which he certainly was. He made incredible accomplishments, but we have forgotten that he was also a man of his own times and faced great opposition in those views. What I argue in the book is that this really went beyond these sort of standard political divisions. The United States was divided along extremist ideological lines. Certainly, many Americans are aware that there was an active communist movement in the United States in the 1930s. Uh, Many historians, and I tend to agree, believe that communism really hit its peak of popularity during the Great Depression, partially because it was not as discredited as it would be after the war. The great human rights abuses of of the Second World War and after by the Soviet Union uh, had not really taken place, though, of course, there had been large-scale bloodshed there. It was not at the scale that had necessarily discredited it for millions of Americans. So we have the communist and and the far left aligning on one side, and then we have the subject of my book on the other, which is which is the far right. Um, Interestingly, I you know if you look at some of the reviews of my book online by by readers, which I always enjoy reading, I've been criticized for not talking more about the left, Um, which is interesting because I never set out to write that book. I I think that would be a fascinating book for someone else to write, but that wasn't the book I was writing here. So I I find that an interesting critique. Um, but I think this, this division really goes beyond what we would understand as, as politics today. Uh, in 2020, we do not have extremist parties aligning outside our normal political spectrum with both sides advocating the overthrow of democracy as we know it, or the overthrow of the American system of government as we know it. Um, and as I point out in the book, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later on, we have some very prominent figures in American politics and American culture who in this period begin moving toward the extremes. And the most prominent example of that for me is Charles Lindbergh, who is this outsized figure. We could do an entire podcast on him, which I think would be fascinating. Um, But this real national hero who in 1940, 1941 begins to seemingly abandon the idea of American democracy as a functioning entity and begins proposing a series of, of changes to American democracy that look very much in line with what's gone on in sort of fascist Europe. So I think the term, you know, divided America has become almost too common in our day and age. And certainly we are politically divided now. But this was a level of division that, that is very much deeper than anything that, that fortunately any of us alive have, have thus far experienced. And I think this was probably the most divided that America had been up until that point since the, since the American Civil War. And I don't know why. Why do you think that general knowledge of American sympathies with the Nazis and fascism in history are generally unknown today? Are we, as the American people, purposely ignoring our shadowed past? Well, I think there is an element of purposeful ignorance about this. I think that's not necessarily on the part of the average American. It's on the part of the people that write history and have written history. And as someone who writes history... um, you know, I think historians have to accept that this is something that has been overshadowed for too long. I think there's two factors at play here, really. The first one is this mythologization idea, this idea that American history in the 1930s and 40s was it was one in which the U.S. was universally the good guys. It was just a matter of time before the U.S. entered the war and won it on the side of freedom and democracy in the American way. And this is simply not true. 
there was no inevitability that the U.S. was going to enter World War II. Now, I think that historians can disagree as to how likely it was during, during the late 1930s, and I would certainly argue that it was, it was probable. But until Pearl Harbor actually happened, there were still powerful factions in the United States that did not want to enter the war. And so there was no inevitability at all that the U.S. was going to enter that war and, and become the deciding force on the side of, of the allies and, and the democracies in that sense. So I think it's partially this view that, that we have just sort of forgotten this controversy because we want to imagine ourselves as always being the knight in shining armor that was going to come to the aid of Britain and the allies. And, and that is simply not the case. I think also, though, there's an element here that's, I, I don't want to say less pernicious, because I'm not sure that, that thinking highly of one's country is, is a pernicious way of thinking. I don't want to say that at all. But I think we have to understand the nuances of it. I think also the fact that these groups that I talk about in the book simply lose in the end has kind of relegated them to, to the dustbin of history. And, and rightly so. We shouldn't necessarily be talking about these extremist groups that some would say had very little impact on American politics long term. I would probably disagree with that. But that's what most historians, I think, would have said up until a few years ago, at least. But I think that this is important history. I think that we, we have to learn as, as Americans from sort of the darker moments in our past to avoid repeating them in the future. And I think that's really why these groups deserve to be talked about in in certainly historical teaching, but certainly in, in the popular press as well. And it has been really amazing, I will say, and I'm, I'm not certainly taking credit for this, but uh, the past few years we've seen a, a real interest in, in these groups and movements um, in both the popular press and in academia as well. And it's been incredibly flattering and exciting to be contacted by, by people all over the country and actually all over the world who have, who have read my book and, um, and in some cases actually have a, have a family story to share about it. They either remember these groups or they had relatives they believe were in it. In some cases, they have artifacts. Um, and so it's been really fascinating to see sort of this history almost come together in a, in a very real way, even since my book came out in 2018. And now that we've touched on this shadowed part of America's past, would you give us an example of groups or movements within the USA that either supported the Nazis or were fascist sympathizers and or who simply preferred isolationism and staying out of the war in general? One thing that we have to remember about this period is that there was really a wide range of groups that had a wide range of extremist views. Um, in the book, I class these as being groups on the political right. Now, I've been somewhat criticized for that, for that definition. And people have asked me, why are you saying that these are groups on the political right? Um, I don't know whether there's a political agenda there or not, but, but I, the question has come up. And I have a very simple answer to that because they consider themselves to be on the political right. Um, you know, they say that they are, they are strongly opposed to communism. They are opposed to socialism. And so they see themselves as creatures of the political right under that sort of spectrum. So the, the largest of these and the most prominent was the German-American boot. Now, the Bund was founded in, in 1936 by some German-Americans who nominally wanted to, to honor their homeland, maintain German-American culture, um, maintain the language. They published a German-language newspaper. Um, but it very quickly became clear in 1936-37 that this was about more than just German-American culture. This was really about support for the Third Reich. Now, the Bund's leader was a man named Fritz Kuhn who was himself a German-American immigrant. He 
by his own account, we don't know whether this is actually true, claimed to have been an old member of the Nazi party and had been at the Beer Hall Putsch, uh, in which Hitler had been had been imprisoned after afterward for treason in 1923. We don't think that's necessarily true, but it's, it's likely that Fritz Kuhn had some connection to, to the extreme right in Germany prior to moving first to Mexico and then to the United States. And so Kuhn is this really dynamic leader. If you find, uh, you can find footage of him online. There was actually a, a Oscar-nominated short nonfiction uh, documentary film, I should say, uh, a few years ago called A Night at the Garden, which refers to one of the Boone's biggest events in 1939. Uh, but you can see in that, in that film, and I highly recommend it, um, what the Boone was up to. So Kuhn is this sort of dynamic leader. He tries to model his, his speech patterns off of Hitler. Um, he actually speaks in English with a very thick German accent, which, of course, limits his appeal to a, a wide breadth of Americans. But he quickly is, uh, sort of generates this, this support network or this membership of, of, we think, almost close to 100,000 people at the peak of his power. Now, some, some historians would disagree with that, and the numbers are difficult to come by because people come in and out of the group. Membership is paid, so some people in the, in the Depression simply don't pay. There's other people who are assumed to just be supportive, who are not actually members. But I think it's, it's in the high tens of thousands, perhaps even above 100,000 at, at its peak. And the boon becomes very troubling to the U.S. government. So Kuhn is this outsized leader. He wears these uniforms that are modeled off of the, the SA in, in Germany. And he, even more insidiously, begins putting together children's summer camps. So German-American Bund members, especially in the New York City region, can send their children out to these camps where they are, as we would say today, indoctrinated with supporting the Third Reich. They sing songs about Hitler. They learn German. Uh, they even put on very creepy Christmas programs and things like that that end with these kids giving the Nazi salute. And so Kuhn becomes this, this object of great concern within the United States. And so there's great pressure on Congress and the FBI to intervene. The FBI actually looks into it and determines that there are no laws being broken by Kuhn or the Boone. This is all perfectly acceptable First Amendment and indeed Second Amendment rights. Um, Kuhn, Kuhn's group involves a little bit of weapons training as well. So while this is all very insidious, there's not much anyone can do until 1939 when Kuhn eventually... Uh, to not, not not to give away the entire book, uh, but uh, ends up having this mass rally in Madison Square Garden. Tens of thousands of people show up. Again, something completely left out of our history textbooks today. Um, and in the aftermath of that, ends up being investigated for financial malfeasance uh, by New York State. Um, and as it turns out, Kuhn has been uh, taking some money out of the, the Boone's accounts, as it turns out, to, uh, to support several mistresses in various cities across the country. So, so the boon is really brought down by, the, by really the, the vagaries of its leadership. And, and that's true across several of the groups that I look at in the book. So while these, these men, and it, it is generally men, uh, present themselves as the American version of Hitler, um, oftentimes they're, they're revealed to, to simply be frauds, to be people who have been grifting off of very enthusiastic supporters and indeed um, sort of putting the membership dues into their pockets. The, on the isolationist side, the side opposed to intervention in the war, the biggest group by far is the America First Committee. Now, America First is founded after the 1940 election. I'm sure we'll talk about that more later on. Uh, but it, it rapidly explodes into a membership of, of more than 800,000 people. So some historians argue this is the biggest political nonpartisan group in American history. 
in terms of popular membership. Um, the America Firsters actually have a wide platform of policies that they're proposing. They're pr- proposing economic isolationism. Um, they're proposing huge tariff walls to protect American industries. Um, and they are most certainly proposing uh, keeping the U.S. out of any involvement in, in the European war, which is well underway in 1940 and 41. So this is a mass movement. This is really a, a group that is founded because FDR wins the 1940 election. Now there is great fear that, that the U.S. will enter the war, which it will after Pearl Harbor. Uh, and the most popular America first speaker is Charles Lindbergh, who I'm sure we'll talk about in, in great depth. But he's not the only one. America first includes a number of U.S. senators, a number of representatives, uh, cultural figures from sort of across the political spectrum. It is it is bipartisan in that sense. Um, and I argue in the book, and this is this is somewhat controversial, that America first is really one of Hitler's greatest assets in the United States at this moment in history. Not because it is like the boon. It's not working to establish hypothetically a, a Nazi style dictatorship in the U.S., but because it is, it is working towards Nazi strategic aims, knowingly or unknowingly. And I quote people like Hermann Goering in the book, um, sort of remarking that America First is, is one of the Nazis' greatest allies because it is, is putting so much pressure on Roosevelt to stay out of the war, which is what Hitler and the Nazi high command really wants. So, you know, you really have groups here that run the gamut of, of folks like the Boone that, that sort of desire some sort of version of Nazism in the United States. And then you have groups like America First that, that I think genuinely are presenting themselves as a patriotic organization. I think most America Firsters believe that, that they are working in the best interests of their country. But I don't think that it's at all a stretch to say that when you think of what the Nazis are aiming for in 1940-41, the America Firsters are, are inadvertently really advocating in favor of Nazi Germany's strategic interests. That is really, really interesting. We've talked a little bit about different groups in the USA who may have willingly or unknowingly helped the Nazis or almost helped the Nazis in their goal. My next question is, were there pushes in the USA to install a similar regime in America? And if so, who were the group or groups attempting to mimic the American version of the Third Reich? Well, you've got a number of groups that, that supposedly want to install something similar to, to what's happening in Nazi Germany. Uh, the big one, again, being the German-American boon, this group that has a nationwide presence. There are others as well, though. I think one of the more bizarre groups is called the Silver Legion, which occupies the second chapter of my book. Uh, but the Silver Legion is founded by a man named William Dudley Pelly, who is a, a mystic, actually. <laughs> he is interested in, in, in seances and contacting the, the dearly departed. Um, claims to to have gotten in spiritual touch with uh, with George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and, and Jesus. <laughs> so he's a sort of outsized figure. And what we have to remember is that sp- spiritualism is very popular in the United States in the 1920s and 1930s, um, especially in Hollywood, where actually uh, Pelly is from. He's a he's a Hollywood screenwriter. And so you know the Silver Legion is this very outsized group. I I, I think that Pelly being a Hollywood screenwriter is actually the key to understanding it. Because these guys are so over the top that it almost seems like they are being written for, for the silver screen. Um, but Pelly organizes them into, into what he calls his, his, his silver legion. He issues them very distinct uniforms, even, even more distinct than the Boond, that are, that are silver shirts with this giant red L right over the heart um, that he claims stands for, for a motto of, of three terms that start with L, but really it stands for the legion. 
Um, and, you know, this, this is the kind of stuff, again, that would be quite easily, I think, written off as an obscure group that made no difference in American history, except that they are quite scary at the time. Uh, the Legion attracts nationwide attention in, in the press and in Congress because Pelley's lieutenants order them, order its members to start arming to prepare for what they see as a future racial war. Um, they are actually infiltrated by various intelligence and law enforcement groups at various points. Um, and Pelley runs for president in 1936, only gets on the ballot in the state of Washington. Um, but still, this is, this is not necessarily a man who, who has no following whatsoever. Uh, there are hearings on Capitol Hill related to what the Silver Legion is, is up to. And so Pelley, actually very similar to Fritz Kuhn, ends up being brought down by his own financial malfeasance. Uh, as it turns out, he, he had been running a spiritualist journal out of, his, out of Asheville, North Carolina, where he was, where he was from. Um, and, uh, when he films the silver legion kind of not necessarily embezzles, but, uh, moves funds that had been obtained from, from stockholders in, in the journal into, into the legion's coffers. And of course this is, this is fraud. Um, so, so uh, Pelly actually ends up going on the run for a period of time, um, <laughs> sort of evading the law in Indiana. Um, he's, he's struck by an alliance with the local Ku Klux Klan. So he's probably being helped out by the Klan up there. Um, and I think it's in 1941, I want to say, where he actually ends up turning himself in to authorities. He no longer wants to be on the run. So this is a man who's really larger than life. Um, and I think, you know, when we think about this counterfactual question, right, if had, had there been some sort of fascist revolution in the United States, or if the Nazis had even more sort of, I think, unlikely um, been able to invade the United States and set up a, a quizzling style puppet regime here, who would they have gone to? To, to sort of do this? I mean, I think the answer is pretty clear. It would have been people like Charles Lindbergh, who, who the Nazis know very well, actually. Lindbergh spend time, spends time in Germany. He's a very popular figure in the United States. But it also would have been people like Fritz Kuhn. It would have been people like, like William Dudley Pelley, who, who are more ideologically extreme, but can command a certain part of the electorate, right? I mean, Pelley, while he has the Silver Legion, is very popular among Klansmen as well. And so this is, you know, if you imagine this counterfactual sort of you know, Nazi coalition, these are the men that would have featured in, in, its, in its governance. And so I think that's really why we have, to, we have to keep these groups in mind. We have to really understand what they believed and how they function, because while, while quite fortunately they ended up being asterisks in history, they, they might have at one point have been much more. With many of these groups being very extreme, I'm sure being very racially motivated, of course, the Silver Legion is preparing for this supposedly upcoming racial war what effects did these movements and sympathies have on anti-Semitism and anti-Slavic sentiments in the U.S.? Well, I looked at a lot of public opinion data for this book, uh, which was really fascinating. I actually encourage everyone to, to go back and, and you can find these in published volumes that the Gallup company has, um, has published much of their public opinion data from this period. But one thing we have to remember is that anti-Semitism was very common in the United States in this period. Uh, and this is not just what we would consider sort of casual anti-Semitism today, exclusion of, of Jewish members from golf clubs or, um, you know, casually anti-Semitic remarks, things of that sort, which, which persist, unfortunately, in our present day, but also in our, in our recent history as well. But this was really virulent anti-Semitism. And, and one of the stats that surprised me during my research was Gallup asked a question, I, I believe it's Gallup, might have been Fortune magazine. Uh, about what people think should happen with America's Jewish community, which even the, the presentation of the question really almost suggests that there's disagreement on this question, right? Um, 
But there's a substantial number, I want to say around 20% of Americans, that say that they would like Jews to leave in the most, and they say in the most humane way possible, right? And, and you know, it's a fascinating question to ask. It's the kind of question that you would, you would hopefully never think a pollster would have to ask today. But that, while it's not a majority of Americans, this is still quite a lot of Americans, millions certainly, that think that, that America's Jewish community is, is not welcome in that sense. And so there's no doubt that these groups are, in a lot of ways, preying upon, I think, this, this undertone of, of anti-Semitism and, of course, anti-Slavic sentiment as well. I mean, this is just general anti-immigrant sentiment to some extent. But I think a lot of it is directed really at, at the country's Jewish population because it has been, it has been presented as, as such, a, such a sort of foreign group for, for so long. Um, and and that, that really surprised me. I mean, I, I think there's, there's a lot of research on historical American attitudes toward race. But I think it's important for us to realize that this is not the distant past. This is not the 19th century. This is, this is still living memory, actually, for some people. And they're, they're quite old, but, they, but there are still folks with us that live through this. Um, and so I think that's really important for us to remember that while certainly great progress has been made on, on racial issues in the United States, and of course, it's come to the forefront recently, this is very recent history. This is the kind of stuff that, that certainly my, my grandparents lived through when they were in their, in their 20s. Uh, and so we, ha- we have to keep in mind that while great progress has been made, it is very important to realize that, that these undertones still exist to some extent. They exist in the recent past. And, and there are certainly, in this period, there are groups that, that use that type of sentiment for their own, for their own purposes. As we approach past this aspect of the podcast, my next question is, with these movements, with these demonstrations, we have incidents in American history, such as the Tulsa Race Massacre, for example. And I was curious to know, were there any violent or destructory impacts towards Jewish or black communities during this period because of these movements? It's a great question, and it's very difficult to know, partially because some of this was not reported. And this was one thing that I tried to, to sort of quantify in, in my book. Um, you know, how many, how many hate crimes are we talking about against the country's Jewish community that could be linked to this? That data was not really collected. The idea of, of looking at hate crimes as a specific category of crime doesn't really come around until well into the post-war period. So it's difficult to know. And oftentimes, unfortunately, these cases were not reported because there was a view that the police wouldn't take them seriously. Um, in New York City, for instance, there were widespread rumors that the, the New York City Police Department, which historically had had a large number of, of Irish American Catholic um, individuals in it, uh, would simply ignore these police reports if they were brought to them and may have, in some cases, have been ind- individual officers may have been um, sympathetic to to some of what was going on. There's actually a fascinating photograph I uncovered uh, following my book uh, from upstate New York uh, at a Boone rally where, and it's a fascinating snapshot, um, there are several police officers who are sort of lounging around having having a smoke with uniformed Boone members. Uh, presumably these officers were there to either provide security or to, to even monitor the Boone's activities. But they appear to be very, very comfortable uh, hanging out with the members. And so how much of that is true is, is really difficult to know. But there's certainly a view that, that these crimes will not be taken seriously. That said, I didn't uncover any instances of, of large scale organized violence, as we see in, in the Tulsa events and things of that sort. But there were certainly references to, to Jews being beaten up on, on subway platforms and being sort of roughed up 
by um, by sort of either Boone members or supporters of Father Father Coughlin, the sort of far right preacher in this period. And so there is violence that takes place. And I think, unfortunately, we're never going to know the extent of, of how impactful that was. But I mean, imagine growing up as a as a as a Jewish young person or from from one of these from an immigrant group that falls afoul of, of these organizations. This must have been a truly terrifying experience because you you do believe much like a group like the Ku Klux Klan in the United States and, and anti-black violence, um, that, that the system is, is in some ways protecting this extrajudicial violence in that way. And so this is, again, a part of history that I think we, we really need to not only understand, but also work to confront why this was able to take place and, and how we can avoid it in the future. That is really, really interesting. I Yeah. I mean, it's so sad when you think about not being able to go to the authorities, right, because of your classification in their society. That's, I mean, that's something, you know, I'll never know what that's like. Right. And so I can't, I can't even imagine for people like black Americans or Jews or other people from immigrant groups within like Eastern Europe and what they would have went through and what they may have experienced that realistically they never reported, like you said, because they didn't think anything would happen or even worse, it could actually get worse if they said something right. So yeah, and this huh. is why you also get groups like the Anti-Defamation League um, that begin speaking up on these issues, you know, after the war and saying, hold on, you have to you have to actually track this stuff. <laughs> you, you can't just, you know, let it be swept under the rug. Um, you know, I, I, I really admire the work that the ADL and, and a few of the other groups do on this stuff. Um, but we have to remember this was this was not that long ago. As many of my subscribers and listeners know, I enjoy studying dictator cults. And in your book, you discuss a belief among certain individuals in North America that Hitler had actually fulfilled a religious prophecy. And I was hoping that you could expand on that for us today. Well, these are really the the more extreme groups that I studied within this book. Um, The Silver Legion is the most prominent one. So, So William Dudley Pelley sort of believes that Hitler is is fulfilling a religious prophecy that he he claims he's received directly from Jesus. So remember he's believes that he uh, has spiritually contacted Jesus and is is I guess chatting with Jesus about current events um and that Jesus gives him this sort of, you know, seemingly um puzzling prophecy that that when a painter takes control of Germany, then Pelle's religious mission is to set up an organization that mimics what's going on in Germany. So this prophecy is supposedly fulfilled when Hitler takes power in, in 1933. Hitler, of course, uh, has been a has been a painter. <laughs> um, now, what's what's you know hilarious as with many so-called prophecies, uh, Pelle only releases this to the public after Hitler has come to power. So you know, whether this is genuinely prophecy or whether this is uh, Pelle coming up with a post facto justification, I think you know that that's up to the listeners to decide. Um, but but Pelle sees Hitler in this very religious way, and he claims that the Silver Legion is, is bringing about a, a quote-unquote Christian commonwealth. Um, he cloaks many of his prophecies in, in religion. Um, and, and I think this is a really valuable uh, way that he, he uses this to his own benefit, let's say, um, because America is still a, a deeply religious country in this period. I think there's a, there's a secondary sort of phenomenon that happens here too. And that is the view that Hitler is a protector of Christianity in Germany. Now, this is a, a really strange view for us to understand today. And it, it frankly took me quite a bit of, of time and, and just really thinking about it and, and research as well, obviously, to understand what was going on here. 
But the, the essence of it is we have to remember that, that Germany has undergone this very tumultuous 1920s where you have communists brawling with uh, members of far-right parties in the streets of Berlin. You have actual uprisings against the state uh, by, by far-left groups of a variety of, of um, types. Um, and in, immediately after World War I, you'd actually had the Spartacist uprising in Berlin where you'd had uh, far left groups and communists trying to take over post-war Germany. And the government actually calls upon the far right militias to put down the rioting in Berlin. So this is the equivalent of, of the government calling upon not the police nor the military, but just individuals who are often war veterans to, to fight in the streets of Berlin. It's, it's this really important moment. And so obviously under, under communism, when we, when we look at the history here, Communism is very antagonistic toward religion. In the Soviet Union, Christianity is, is, is really pushed to the margins, almost, almost outlawed explicitly. Communism presents itself as, as an atheist ideology. And so you begin to see these, these sort of views coming out of American elements of American Christianity um, that Hitler is protecting the church. And indeed, in the Third Reich, there is a, a somewhat uncomfortable alliance uh, or at least understanding between the Catholic Church, um, various Protestant churches, and, and the government itself, uh, which has been the subject of a great deal of research recently, especially in terms of the Vatican's relationship with the Reich. Um, but this view that Hitler is somehow a, a religious figure um, should be very disturbing to us, I think. You know, anytime someone is described in, in the contemporary world as a religious figure, um, that should that should set off, I think, some, some alarm bells for us. Um, but I think that within the context of the time, this was a very convincing presentation to, to, a, to a lot of people, unfortunately. Um, and I certainly have found evidence of, of American religious leaders going to Germany um, and, and coming back and telling their, their parishes or their flocks that Hitler is, is this great um, protector of Christianity. Uh, this, this should be really disturbing to us today. In your work, you point out that there were some Catholic or extreme Catholic individuals or groups that supported the Nazis in the U.S., and for me, that was really thought-provoking, and I asked myself why. And uh, my reason for that is, we know that Catholics were a minority within a predominantly Protestant Germany, and we know that certain political arms of the Catholics, such as the Catholic Center Party, were being basically persecuted and attacked in various ways, and so... Long story short, I think my question is, why do you think Catholics or some Catholics in the USA would support the regime that's basically persecuting their uh, ethnically related cousins through religion, if that makes sense? It's a great question, uh, and it's one that, it, that, is, that is so good I don't have an easy answer for it, actually. I mean, I think, I think a lot of it is, is, is twofold, right? Part of it is the phenomenon I talked about talked about before, which is this idea of the Catholic Church in Germany coming to a, a concordat with Hitler. Um, and, and again, there's a lot of research being done in, into what the Vatican's role in this was. Um, we've recently had, had the Vatican releasing more documentation related to the papacy in this period, so hopefully we can get a clearer sense. But regardless, we know that as in fascist Italy, the church does come to some sort of arrangement with the regime in in the Third Reich that probably we, we think is something along the lines of, of keeping out of politics on the church's side in exchange for protection of, of the church's interests in Germany and, and Catholics 
um, more widely in Germany um, on the part of the regime. And that would make sense, right? I mean, that would make sense for someone like a Hitler to, to pursue that kind of concordat because you're never going to make people not be Catholic in that sense, right? I mean, this is, this is not, not something that's possible for a regime like that. I mean, the Soviet Union tried, tried to do this for the 80 years of its existence and never managed to, to take away people's religion entirely. So, you know, that, would, that is what certainly what happened in Italy and probably it happened in the Reich as well. I, I think in the United States, when, when Catholics become aware that that's, you know, not the details necessarily, but get a sense that, that Catholicism is being protected in Germany, that that gives them some sort of sense of, of solace, um, that, that perhaps indeed, as I mentioned, perhaps Hitler is a protector of Christianity. And I think you, you often in this period, and I've, I've seen this explicitly uh, stated in some senses, um, you get this view that, that you've got to choose between your evils to some extent, right? So if you're in Europe, do you, do you want to be communist or do you want to be fascist? Neither of these are 100% comfortable necessarily. But for people of faith, I think there's a temptation to look at what's happening in Italy and Germany and say, at least it's not communism. At least it's not Stalin. And it's not an entirely irrational view because certainly there is much less persecution, at least overtly. But I think that's where you, you get into these troubling sort of moral questions. And certainly this has always been the question with, with the Vatican and the church's involvement is, could there have been more done uh, to to protect Germany's Jewish population? Could there have been more done to prevent human rights abuses? Um, and, and we know actually, and this is, I guess what, well, I, I certainly know this is what disturbs me the most about the Third Reich and should disturb all of us, is that otherwise moral and otherwise faithful people uh, end up committing atrocities in the Reich. And we know this from the work of people like Christopher Browning, who looks at police officers who end up being sent to the Eastern Front and committing atrocities. These are otherwise pillars of their community. These are men who, in some cases, were church-going, and yet they end up committing these horrendous human rights abuses. And so this regime had the ability to, to really appropriate people for its own purposes and to, and to give them, in some senses, a moral... To, to remove their moral compass, I think we could say, and, and convince them to do these horrendous things that, that normally they would not have done. Certainly, I think, and we see this after the war, some of these people come forward and say, yes, I, I murdered people. I did things that I never otherwise would have done, but I did so because of the circumstances and the regime's ability to, to sort of remove people's moral compass. So I think that's, that's what's happening to a large extent with, with the religious communities at, at this point. There's also this factor of, in the U.S. of Father Charles Coughlin, who is really the most prominent, I would say, radio show host of, of all time. I mean, this is a man who accumulates an audience larger than any talk show host since then, um, even with a country that's twice as big. Um, so Coughlin is this this, minute, this priest, I should say. He's based out of Royal Oak, Michigan. Um, he is Canadian, actually, by birth, but moves to, moves to Michigan, is sent there to, to run this, this parish shrine, actually. Um, and Coughlin turns to radio in the 1920s as a way to, um, with the noblest of intentions, we should say, he, he goes on radio to try to educate the largely Protestant Michigan community about Catholicism and sort of can try to show that Catholics are members of the society just as they are. They are patriotic Americans. They are not an, an alien threat. Um, this is an area where there's a lot of Ku Klux Klan activity in that period. So, so it's the noblest of intentions. But after the Depression begins, Coughlin begins moving in this much more politically extreme direction. Um, and again, not to give away the entire plot of the book, uh, but he 
ends up uh, turning against President Roosevelt in the mid-1930s, actually forms his own political party, advocating extreme economic measures to, to dig out from the Depression, um, and ultimately ends up really parroting Nazi talking points on the air. To the extent that, that ultimately the Vatican um, orders him into silence, uh, the church hierarchy tells him that he that they want to review his his talks before he goes on the air, um, and that ultimately ends up with him being pulled off the air. You know, we talked about counterfactuals earlier. That sort of that silencing of Father Coughlin takes place um, before the 1940 election, uh, where Roosevelt seeks and wins his third term. An interesting counterfactual question would be: What if Coughlin was not? pulled off the air before, before, prior to the 1940 election. And so we have these very interesting sort of elements coming together in American life in this period. And, and what I sort of present in the book is, you know, what if the timing had been different? What if, what if Father Coughlin and William Dudley Pelley and the Boond had all still been operating at full strength simultaneously at this moment when FDR is trying to win the 1940 election? Fortunately, it didn't happen. But I think that's where we get into this really disturbing counterfactual uh, scenario. That's, I mean, that's so interesting because when you think of, you know, like our public radio today, the last thing you think about is, you know, fascist ideology or Nazism being pushed to an American audience. And that just, you know, that absolutely baffles me until that part of your book. I'll be honest. I had never even realized such a thing had ever happened. That's, it's baffling to think about, right? It's just, wow. Well, it is. And, and, you know, I think it's, it's partially because we, we, you know, there's a lot of extreme stuff on the radio, but you would very, it'd be very unlikely that you would hear someone advocating national socialism, right? I mean, that would be very disturbing, I think, to a wide, wide, wide breadth of Americans, which, which is a good thing, right? I mean, it's good that we've, we've, even in our extreme and polarized times, we've sort of pushed this stuff so far outside the mainstream. And I think it would be, it would be very disturbing for people to hear that. Now, we're going to come to a part of your book that really touches on something that not only astonished me, but it actually made me quite angry. And it's uh, it's really weird because I don't hardly ever get aggravated when reading about history, right? It's just a part of hindsight. It never really affects me. But that was the fact that certain members of Congress use their special privileges and taxpayer money to basically mail and distribute Nazi propaganda. Would you expand on this a little bit more for my audience who is probably unfamiliar with this? Absolutely. I, I agree. This is an absolutely infuriating story. And it's one that in researching the book, I was surprised that I had never heard about before. I mean, this is something that involves Capitol Hill. It involves the, the real seat of American political power. Uh, at, at the heart of this plot was a man named George Sylvester Virek who was a, a German propagandist. He had actually been a propagandist during World War I um, and, and very narrowly escaped, by the way, being tossed into prison um, for, for subversive propaganda, but manages, manages to skate the charges in World War I, um, goes off to Germany in the interwar period, becomes sort of infatuated with Hitler, um, and comes back and, and really offers his services to the German foreign ministry. And Virek's idea is that if you're going to keep America out of the Second World War, you have to have prominent political figures advocating that view. So during World War I, he had tried to publish journals and plant stories in the press and things like that, and it, and it simply didn't work. So Virek's idea was that it's, it, it's important to have respected voices putting forth these views. And Virek is really a genius, I should point out. I mean, this is, this is incredibly cynical 
and and should I would say should be very disturbing stuff. Um, but but in the 1930s, Virac actually begins cultivating a network of isolationist senators on Capitol Hill, and so his first target is is Senator Ernst Lund, Ernest Lundeen, um, who's from the Upper Midwest. He's actually a farmer labor member. And he has been a skeptic of American involvement in World War One. Uh, he represents a large German American constituency, and so and and Lundin, we should point out, is also personally corrupt. So he's made some bad business deals during the Great Depression, um, and is so broke apparently that he he asks his staff to kick back part of their salaries to him every month in exchange for their employment. This is a man who who will do anything, needs and wants the money. Um, and, and is an easy target for someone like like a Virac. Um, so Virac goes to Lundin and says, look, you, you Senator, are anti-war as well. Um, I have contacts in Germany. I can, I can help you keep the U.S. out of the war. I can help educate the American public. And so this starts out as sort of a, a speechwriting arrangement where Lundin um, actually asks Virac to help out with his speeches on, a, on an uncompensated basis. Um, and Virek, of course, does this. Now, when you look at these speeches, these are these are things that we actually know are being written in Berlin in some cases. They're coming directly from the propaganda ministry. And they are speeches that hurl vitriol on the British and call upon the British to pay their First World War debts, which was another highly controversial issue that we've completely forgotten about today. But this was a massive political scan, uh, sort of controversy in the 1930s. Um, he, he criticizes... Uh, the British ambassador to the United States as because he had formerly been an appeaser in, in Britain. Um, he sort of suggests that the United States and Germany do not have a need to go to war with one another. There's a, a potential peace that can be reached. So we have a, a Nazi agent planting um, this information into, into Birek's speeches. And it's very clear that, that Birek is actually just writing um, the senator's speeches at this point. Um, but this is not enough for Virac. So he has these speeches being given or placed in the congressional record, but he desires more. I and mean, this is not necessarily reaching a mass audience. So what Virac then realizes is that members of Congress have a very unique privilege, um, and that is privilege to insert statements into the congressional record. So he begins inserting speeches that are not even being delivered in the U.S. Senate into the congressional record. And then, this is where it's truly genius, begins ordering off prints of those speeches from the Congressional Printing Office. So this is, the, this is still actually the case on Capitol Hill. Um, but you can order, um, not so much in the digital age, obviously, but it, it theoretically it could happen, um, that in this period, senators could order and representatives could order these speeches to be printed really at taxpayer expense. So they would pay a nominal sum for them, but they'd be printed and given to the Congressional Office. And then they, Virek decided or figured out that he could use congressional franking privilege. So the congressional frank is the ability to send mail out at taxpayer expense. So Virek begins doing this. He begins inserting speeches into the congressional record, ordering off prints, which are largely being paid for by taxpayers, and then mailing these speeches out in envelopes with a senator or representative's signature on the top using the congressional frank. So this is all being done by American taxpayers. Now, where does he, how does he know how to mail these out? He actually gets the lists of various isolationist groups and begins mailing out these speeches to these individuals and other groups that are potentially, or he believes are going to be sympathetic to, to this isolationist message. So this is a really bizarre thing. I mean, during, during the course of the 1930s, there are Americans who across the country who received these unsolicited envelopes 
with a member of Congress's signature at the top, the congressional frank, um, that may not even be their representative in a lot of cases. Um, and they receive this, this sort of unsolicited speech denouncing the British or something along these lines. Um, so this is really a genius plan. I mean, I tried to put a number on how many pieces of mail Virek manages to, to defraud taxpayers for. Um, it's easily in the millions. Um, Virek also buys a, a press in New Jersey, which begins cranking out isolationist literature and, again, mailing it out. And I've seen some of these books, actually. I mean, they're very cheaply produced. <laughs> they are, uh, you know, just standard brown cover um, with, like, you know, very, very badly printed text on it. Um, but these are, go- these, I mean, he's printing these in, in huge numbers. And what's interesting about this is when he's working with Lundin and some of these other representatives that he gets to, to, to write things, quote unquote, for his press, he actually kicks them back some of the royalties. And so this is a financial arrangement as well. It's, it's corruption really at the highest levels, if you will, of, of the U.S. government. Um, Lundin is financing this incidentally by money he's just picking up from the German embassy. Uh, he has received an open line of credit, essentially, from the German embassy. And so there's accounts of him just going there and picking up bundles of cash and taking them out and using them to publish these these books at, at his press in New Jersey. Um, and then actually, a few of the books actually do quite well. Um, and so he just pockets those profits as well and probably dispenses them out to various political figures or, or staffers that are that are part of his scheme. So this is this is really clever stuff. Um, this this goes on quite quite legally, actually, um, lar- largely legally, um, until the U.S. passes the Foreign Agents Registration Act um, in 1938. Now this is this is actually legislation that I argue is written to to shut down Virek himself, um, but it prevents it, it makes essentially requires that anyone working on behalf of what's called a foreign principal. So a foreign government register that activity in that period with, with the Secretary of State. Um, Virek has not done this. He is clearly working for the Nazis. And so the U.S. government ends up prosecuting him for, for violations of, of FARA, as it's called. Um, <laughs> again, not to give away the whole plot, but uh, he, ends up, he ends up appealing that conviction to the U.S. Supreme Court um, on, on the basis that it is a ex post facto law that when he was actually committing this crime, it was not a crime. And bizarrely, the Supreme Court upholds this. So Virek's conviction is actually vacated, which when the U.S. government goes after him again on another set of charges. So you, yeah. again, I think this just goes on to reflect just how tenuous American politics was in this period. Um, I mean, this this is a huge scandal. I mean, this, this makes the front pages and there are congressional staffers that go to prison as part of this for perjury. Um, I mean, this is a big scandal and something that I think we, we've just forgotten about today because there's so much other stuff going on in this period. That is absolutely amazing. I mean, <laughs> I have to give it to him. Like, I mean, whole, honestly, the whole scheme obviously agitates me, but you can't actually call him an idiot. Like, obviously, this dude is incredibly intelligent and he knows how to work a system. Wow. Well, that absolutely. Is- I mean, you know, I, I think one thing, you know, you can say about Virak a lot of things, but he is he's a very smart man and also a very accomplished author. I mean, he, he ends up he writes poetry. He is friends with Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, he's a fascinating figure who I think, you know, really deserves more of more of a look in American history. He's he's a, he's really more important than I think we, we let on. As we approach the end of this episode, I want to bring up. Our day today and parallels with the past when it comes to Nazism and fascism, would you say that there are still remnants in the USA today 
do you believe that there are certain modern parallels going on today that perfectly or closely mirror the past? Well, you know, I think one of the one of my favorite sayings that's often been attributed to Mark Twain, but I'm not sure we actually know its origins, um, is that history never repeats itself, but it rhymes. And I think there is no doubt that we are seeing offshoot groups of the ones that I look at in the 1930s in our world today. The neo-Nazi movement, unfortunately, is, is as strong today as it's ever been in this country. Um, and only a few days ago at the time we're recording this, um, the acting director of the FBI has said that the white supremacism presents perhaps our greatest domestic security challenge. So there is no doubt that we are seeing an upswing in in groups that are emulating the ones that I look at in, in this book. Um, what's also disturbing, and I, I certainly am not encouraging listeners to do this necessarily, but if you, if you sort of enter the far right internet sphere for any period of time, um, and I'm, by that I mean sort of far right message boards um, where, where these folks congregate often anonymously, you'll see direct references to these groups. Um, you, you will see people discussing people like Fritz Kuhn. Uh, you will see reprints of, of George Sylvester Virek's writings from this period. Um, and those are being appropriated again today. And so we have to understand that this is, this is not dead history. This is, this is very active in our time. Um, and I'm sure I don't need to remind any listeners about the events that we saw in Charlottesville a few years ago, where we saw groups from across the, the spectrum of the far right converging in, in what became ultimately a violent confrontation. The other thing that I that I I think it's important to remind people is that that's not a bug in the system, so to speak. It's it's not a it, it's not surprising that that those types of events result in violence because if you look at what these groups have written, even in the 1930s and today, violence is part of the ideology. It is something that they they welcome. They welcome those violent confrontations, and so unfortunately, I I think that this is a, a very serious threat to, to the United States internal stability today. Um, I think the other factor, of course, is that we're seeing a lot of this rhetoric being stoked online by, by malicious actors. Um, following the 2016 election, there was this analysis, and, and certainly we don't have to be political about this. I mean, this was the, the analysis of, of our intelligence services, um, that, that actors in Russia particularly uh, use social media to try to up the temperature in the United States, to try to divide Americans against one another, um, using a lot of a lot of these sort of messages from both sides of the political spectrum, actually. Um, but I think in some ways that the, the far right has been been prepping for this moment for a considerable period of time. Um, you know, one of my research angles that I'm looking at right now is, is tracing some of these groups after the war. And I've, I found a little bit of evidence. I mean, this will be a little bit of a preview for the audience, I guess, of, of things I'm working on. Um, that a lot of these individuals simply morph into supporters of neo-Nazi groups after the war. Um, and there's some interesting outside angles, too. So William Dudley Pelley actually becomes one of the founders of early UFOlogy. So he begins writing about aliens, right, in this period. And uh, some of your listeners may be aware that there's that UFOlogy is this kind of interesting world of its own that's been mainstreamed by certain cable networks and things like that. Um, but UFOlogy has its origins in some ways in, in the Third Reich. Um, Heinrich Himmler and the SS are interested in the, the origins of the Aryan race, as they call it. And they have these, send these strange expeditions to Antarctica and to Nepal and places like that to try to find these roots. Well, after the war, that morphs into this increasing interest in the Cold War period with, with UFOs and the idea that perhaps 
um, uh, you know, aliens have either visited them, the, the, the Earth or, uh, or are on Earth today. And so you have a lot of threads that I think these, these sort of groups move into um, after the war. And that's, that's really become my interest today. But, you know, I, I think when we look at American politics, it, it can be very disheartening. And I think, you know, I, I'm sort of guilty of it myself, because when we look at history like this, um, there's a temptation to say, well, it's, it's, you know, a bunch of Nazis in the 30s and the Nazis are coming back today and, and we're all in trouble because of that. And certainly it is deeply concerning. Um, but I think also what's important to keep in mind is, is a sense of optimism. Uh, in the 1930s, these groups never really got close to obtaining power. Um, the American political system did ultimately hold together. Now, you could say that's partially because of Pearl Harbor and the fact that Americans largely, you know, 95 plus percent united after Pearl Harbor in favor of the war effort. Um, but I think there's also something about the American mentality that that serves to protect us against that as well. I, I do not think that most Americans will ever support a regime of the type that, that we saw in Europe in the 1930s. And, that, and that's a good thing. We are simply too, we are too diverse as a country. We are too diverse in our thinking. We are too pluralistic, I think, at the end of the day. And so I think we, we have to keep in mind that, that while these groups do present a real threat, um, I, I certainly have confidence personally that, that we can survive this moment. We can survive these threats and, and we can continue to um, to overcome these these demons of our past. But at the same time, I think it's important that we recognize that those demons did exist, they, they were real, and that, that it takes active effort to, to really to defeat them in that way. You had mentioned your book reviews and some of the comments you get, this almost whataboutism. And I've noticed this myself when posting about the war crimes of the Nazis in Eastern Europe or France, that I get a lot of flack in a lot of the comments are, well, what about the Soviets? You know, what about this? And it's this odd, it's an odd attempt in a way to deflect to a different political side of the spectrum. And I feel like in many ways, some of these whataboutisms is due to people possibly being uncomfortable with the conservative aspects of Nazi Germany. What would you have to say about that in your experience? Well, I think it's very true. I mean, I, I actually go on and read every review of my book that I can, which may not be the healthiest practice. But I think it's important to to sort of see what what readers are saying. And and fortunately, a, a lot of the reviews in the press have been been very positive and focused on on the new information that this book reveals. But but some of the online reviewers by by readers, and I hope they have actually read the book, um, uh, you know, have have been have have criticized it in a couple of different ways that I find interesting. So the first one is exactly what you just described: this, this whataboutism of, um, you know, why is this book not talking more about the extreme left? Well, it's not that book. I mean, I, I that book has been written by other people. I mean, maybe I'll write that book in the future. But this is a book that's about people who supported the Third Reich. So. I, I'm a little unclear as to why that criticism is is really a, a critique at all. Um, and, and the second one is, you know, is is this book about contemporary politics in some way? And and it's not. It's about uh, historical politics. So, you know, I, I think it, it, I, I'm always intrigued by what what folks who write that kind of stuff online are thinking. But I think you're absolutely right when it comes to sort of this whataboutism with with the Soviet Union. Um, certainly, there were grievous human rights abuses committed by the Soviet Union. Uh, I don't think anyone would really deny that who's not an, an ideologue. Um, but I don't quite understand why that means we can't talk about what happened in, in the Reich as well. Um, you know, both those things can be true simultaneously. We don't we don't have to hold a candle for, for one side or the other, nor should we. These are both regimes that that commit horrendous war crimes. So, 
you know, I think part of the nature of, of the internet world that we live in is, is polarization. Uh, you know, you get a lot more engagement, you get clicks and likes and all the rest for, for staking out extreme views. But I think as a historian, we, we really have to resist that kind of, you know, binary view of, well, one was worse than the other or something like that. Well, why, why can't we look at what actually happened in, in all of these places and, and present the facts and not have to not have to rate things against one another, especially horrendous abuses of human rights and things of that sort. So, you know, I, I guess if I have a plea that comes out of this interview, it's for for everyone who engages online to 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 step back a bit and say, hold on, we don't. We, this is not an argument that we're ever going to win. But let's lower the temperature here and look at look at the facts rather than than really trying to to score points for one ideological side or or the other. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us on this awesome presentation and talk by Dr. Hart to where he really brings to life certain aspects of Nazi Germany, but more importantly, aspects hidden in the shadows within American history. And as we end this, I want to end this by telling my viewers to check out the links in the description to where it'll take you to Dr. Hart and a variety of of sites where you can check out all the awesome work that he has to offer. And I encourage you to do this, buy his books, check out his online articles, because we can learn so much from him and other professional historians like him who can really take us through history as we need to know it. And remember, it's our job, whether you're a professional or a novice like myself, to make history matter to spread awareness of that history, and to ensure that no matter what, we do our best, our best, to educate others on the history that we know. Because though history may rhyme, I think it's our job to make sure the negative aspects of history never repeat itself. And it's our job as Americans, as history lovers, to do our best to protect our society today, and education is one of the most fundamental aspects of that struggle. Dr. Hart, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun.